I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Same-sex marriage was very much in the news this week, with US President Barack Obama finally declaring himself in favour of it. The appeal by Senator Catherine Zappone and Dr Anne-Louise Gilligan against a finding that they didn't have a right under the Constitution to marry here in Ireland is to be heard next month in the Supreme Court. While a motion rejecting gay marriage was withdrawn from the Church of Ireland General Synod after it was challenged on the basis that it changed the doctrine of the Church and therefore required new legislation and not simply a motion of synod. Just weeks after the publication of the summary of a Vatican inquiry into the Church in Ireland, three of the four members of formation staff at the Pontifical Irish College in Rome are to be replaced and returned to Ireland. On May Bank Holiday Monday, more than a thousand Catholic laity, priests and nuns called for dialogue in the Irish Church at a day-long conference entitled Toward an Assembly of the Catholic Church. Despite being invited, there were no bishops present, but the Papal Nuncio Archbishop Charles Brown sent a message expressing his good wishes. This event was organised by the Association of Catholic Priests in Ireland. Father Brian Lennon, SJ, is a member of the association, was present on Monday and has written a book called Can I Stay in the Catholic Church? He joins us now from Armagh. Father Brian, why did you write this book? I wrote the book for myself and not for other people. I wrote it because I was so disturbed by the response of the church to the to child abuse. Um, and there's no particular logic in that. There's all sorts of reasons why I would have been disturbed by more or other things in the church's history. But in the end, it turned my stomach and I was asking myself, how can I stay in this church? And for me, the good news is that the process of writing the book has ended up by giving me hope, which was a surprising outcome, I think, for me anyway. In terms of who's to blame, clearly the individuals who committed abuse are themselves to blame. Uh, Secondly, the people who are superiors who knew about it and took no action against that are to blame. But all of that I became more and more aware of happened within a context And that context was essentially a patriarchal context in which men were privileged over women. And in patriarchal societies, I suspect that child abuse is more rampant than in societies that are not patriarchal. I think the the second aspect of it was clericalism, where clergy were seen as superior to lay people because they were, quote-unquote, closer to God. And celibacy was used, I think, as a mechanism to put people like me on a pedestal. But it was all part of a system, and that system was contributed to by lay people. Clergy could not have put themselves on on a pedestal on their own, and I'm not trying to excuse us or let us off the hook, but lay people must have participated in that. So I think there's a number of levels of personal guilt. One is the guilt of those who did it. The second is the guilt of those who knew about it and failed to respond. But there is also a level of connectedness, which... um, is in between guilt and no guilt at all. And that has to do with in what ways did you or I or other people or our parents contribute to a clericalised patriarchal society. 
And also there's the level of connectedness of people who have no guilt at all, but are still members of the church. And as members of the church are connected to what the church did and have to take responsibility or respond to what the church did by making sure that the organisation, that the church as a whole, uh, repents, apologises, makes restitution and changes what was wrong. Uh, in its structures. Now you say that the church is the body of Christ it's meant to be the visible sign of the presence of God in the world and that it always fails in that goal. It always fails in that goal because we are sinners and one of the things that people say to me and the issue I face myself was how can you be a member of an organisation that is corrupt and I said well firstly I'm a sinner myself and secondly there is no organisation that's not corrupt to a greater or lesser extent And thirdly, the incarnation, the coming of God into the world, is about God entering into our world as it is. It's not about God entering into an ideal world where everyone is perfect. It's entering into a world where all of us are sinners. That's used sometimes to say, well, it doesn't matter then that we're corrupt and wrong. That's quite the wrong response. The right response is to say, well, this gracious act of love by God is something that calls us to respond to that. And what God wants us to do is to show God's love uh, and to be a sign of God's love in the world. That's our calling. We'll always fail in it, but that's what we have to struggle to do. Now, two words that you use, and they come up again and again when people are writing about the whole issue of clerical sex abuse, is compassion and accountability. I think there has to be huge compassion for people who have been abused. Um, I I think part of that is listening to them and taking them seriously. The second thing is accountability. Uh, And in a society, in the church, each bishop is accountable only to the Pope. No bishop is accountable to the conference of Irish bishops because that has no executive power over them. They're only accountable to the Pope and they're not accountable to lay people at all. I think that's a bad system, just organisationally. And I think what we have to do is look at the tradition of authority in the church that emerged in all its different facets over the centuries and ask ourselves, well, what would be a sensible form of accountability that we could construct today? Actually, I think lay people play a really important role in this because they have experience of lay organisations, they have experience of accountability that it works and accountability that does not work. Lay people are baptised members of the church. Their membership of the church is exactly the same as mine. I'm a baptised member of the church. But since 19, the last the Code of Canon Law in 1983, lay people have been formally excluded from authority in the church. Throughout history, things were quite different. Now, they weren't necessarily much better as a result, but in many, many decades and centuries of the church's life, lay people played a very significant role in authority. So there's no reason why that cannot happen again. If lay people were in a secular organisation, they would not tolerate, I think, the lack of accountability that exists in the church. They would not tolerate the use of their money without knowing what happens to that money or without having some say over how the money is spent. And I think lay people need to be organised and focused and there needs to be a movement led by lay people uh, which will bring pressure on the church to change. Now let's take that one step further to talk about the role of women in the church and the role of homosexuals. Both groupings feel that they're excluded. Well, they are. Um, 
I think the church cannot deny the charge of patriarchy if it insists on two stances. One is that only the ordained can exercise authority. And secondly, that women cannot be ordained. If you hold those two together, that's very explicitly excluding women from the exercise of authority. And it seems to me that the charge of patriarchy is substantiated. In terms of gay people, I think the, the teaching of the church at the moment is negative about homosexual activity. And in the light of that, we have to be extremely careful about discrimination against uh, gay and lesbian people. The, there is a ruling of the, of the church at the moment, I'm not quite sure of its status, which actually bans people of an ori uh, a, a homosexual orientation from being received into the seminary. Well, that seems to me to be um, wrong. Uh, it also would exclude many uh, people, I've no idea how many, but many people who are priests at the moment who are homosexual and are very good priests and who are celibates. So I think that we have to look very particularly at the experience of gay people. We have to listen to their experience. I think it changes things enormously if your son or brother or your daughter or turns out to be um, gay or lesbian. It changes your whole view on that and you can learn things about what it is to be gay or lesbian through that experience. And secondly, I think we have to listen to the insights of psychology and science. I don't think there's some nice, neat conclusion that you'll come to from all that, but I think at the moment we're not listening and we need to do that. I think other churches, like the Anglican Communion, are actually doing a much better job in this respect than we are. And of course, it's a messy job because lay people and clergy and bishops are divided on this issue. And that's the experience that the Anglican Communion have at the moment. But it seems to me that they are attempting to deal with it in a way that seems to me to be admirable. You talk about finding God within the church, but for many people, I think they still believe in God, but they have abandoned the church, the organised church. I understand that temptation, but I think it is a temptation um, because in the Old Testament and in the New God continuously calls people together. It's much easier without the other people because I can do my own thing. I don't have to be faced with people who disagree profoundly with me um, or whom I find hard to get on with or people who introduce new uh, translations of the liturgy like we have at the moment, some of the prayers of which I personally find almost incomprehensible. But Christ calls us together as a community and the the early peop people in the church who experienced the risen Christ and they mumble and babble about that in words because they don't have words to, to put on that experience. They came together as a group and they came together very early on and they began to develop structures. And secondly, the Eucharist is very important to me because it is one way, it's obviously not the only way, uh, in which we can experience Christ. But I think in the Eucharist we're brought into the presence of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're made part of that, that community of three persons. And the Eucharist is something that you can only experience within the church. It is the, the people of God coming together to be brought by, God, by Christ into the presence of the Trinity. Well, the book is called Can I Stay in the Catholic Church? It's published by the Columba Press and written by Father Brian Lennon, SJ. Father Brian, thank you for joining us this evening. I get a help
Discover Islam, an educational organisation that aims to promote a better understanding of Muslims, recently held an Islamic cultural exhibition at the Gresham Hotel in Dublin, which aimed to dispel misconceptions and provide an opportunity to meet, learn and question the beliefs and views of Irish Muslims. Reporter Rona Tarrant went along to the conference and she began by asking event organiser Abdul Hasib about the event. The organisation is called Discover Islam and the whole idea is to generate, uh, is to raise awareness about Islam and Muslims living in Ireland and also encourage dialogue and discussion between different uh, people and people of different faiths or non-faiths and so on. And the real benefit of this exhibition is, is, is that people, when they come in, they can talk to us one-to-one, on a one-to-one basis and people, meet people who are not so-called leaders or representatives of the community, but they're the people who are in part of the community, the mothers and the fathers and the doctors and the workers and so on. A lot of the um, issues that, non, uh, that Muslim women face in everyday society, only a Muslim woman can answer that question. So when a woman comes in, she'll say, you know, well, why do you wear the veil? Do you not think you're a second-class citizen? Well, I don't understand. And only a Muslim woman can give that explanation and understanding better. There's a difference of opinion about whether or not it's it's obligatory for women to wear it. Um, I have my reasons, and uh, I know that the first women that were Muslim, the earliest Muslim women, did wear uh, something to cover their face. And it's basically uh, to protect them from unwanted advances or just problems from men that are strange. Allah describes himself in the Quran with many uh, with na- many names and many attributes. We know 99 names and attributes of Allah. For example, Allah calls himself the most merciful. He calls himself the creator, the fashioner, um, the most wise, the almighty. These are some of his names and attributes. So when we're praying to God, to Allah, we, we have some understanding of a description of who Allah really is. Um, I don't belong to any religion, by the way. Um, and I prefer to be free of religion, but I believe in respecting other people's beliefs. And I feel this general mistrust is partly ignorance that people um, are, are given false information by the media. So uh, that's why I'm here. I just I'm very interested in Islamic art. The English itself is actually not the Quran. It's a translation of the Quran. So when you go out, you might find, you know, if you look at different translations of the Qur'an, you might find small differences in, in, you know, in the words that are used. The meaning is still the same. But when you look at the Arabic, it's it's exactly the same. I didn't really know much about it before anyway. I I mean, I see see it in the news, things about Islam, but it doesn't really tell you much about what they actually believe. So it's it's really interesting to see what they actually had to say themselves. That report was compiled by Rona Tarrant. Last month, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued its assessment of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, the LCWR, in the United States and described as problematic policies of corporate dissent and tendencies towards radical feminism.
Likewise, the doctrinal assessment criticised positions espoused at LCWR annual assemblies and in its literature, as well as the absence of support from LCWR for church teaching on women's ordination and homosexuality, and complained that the LCWR wasn't doing enough to promote the church's biblical view of family life and human sexuality. During this month, the LCWR is taking time out to reflect on the assessment and to consider its response. Emma Wetherill is a broadcast journalist based in the UK. She works for BBC Radio 4 and she's compiled this report on women in religious life in the US. When a woman becomes a nun, she commits herself to serving God and serving others. She takes three vows which govern her life, poverty, chastity and obedience. These vows are made to God, but they're through the church. Sister Pat Pora has her own definition of obedience. I feel obedient towards the God that's within me and also to the, the people that I work with, that I serve. And how much obedience do you feel towards the church? I think it's a patience that I, you know, but the, the obedience comes from, you know, in hand in hand with patience there. We're trying to be a presence in the world and, and we can't hide behind a habit. The times have changed. You know, before it was more like semi-monastic. And I remember when I used to work at the hospital when I was a younger sister, and I was in habit. I'd get on the elevator, and here I was a professional, and people would see me, and they'd say, oh, isn't she cute? You know, things like that. And, and those kinds of things put a barrier between you and the people that you're working with, because that's a romanticized vision of what religious life is all about, and that's not what we're all about. I don't want to be up on the pedestal, and I shouldn't be up on the pedestal, and it doesn't help either. Sister Pat is petite and bird-like, a contrast to her strong political spirit. She started up this Spanish mass, which is aimed at Hispanic immigrants in Portland, Maine. Latinos are the fastest-rising population in Catholic churches, and each Sunday these pews are packed. When Pat took the veil, she was asked whether or not she wanted to be a teacher or a nurse. Now nuns can be anything from lawyers to lecturers. They are extremely well-educated and get involved in changing society. Sister Pat works with immigrants, and she does more than pray for them. She advocates on their behalf, writes letters to congressmen, protests against anti-immigration laws. If someone in Maine gets detained, she gets involved. Because I know the person, and I've heard that the person is in jail. I write reference letters, work with their lawyers, accompany them to court in Boston, uh, whatever needs to be done. What are people's reactions to you being a sister? There are people that think that I shouldn't be. People that think that we're we're preaching a more socialist role or liberal or whatever, I don't know. But I think that's a gospel mandate. I mean, Christ was very political. Got right up. Sister Elizabeth Cobb lives with another nun on a small residential street in Sanford, Maine. She would prefer to live in a convent, but there aren't enough nuns around to enable that. She wakes up before four o'clock each morning to pray the traditional lords in the third bedroom that they've converted into a chapel. This is a picture of our Holy Father, Pope Benedict, and this is our altar. We are blessed by chastity. It gives us so much time to serve others. Poverty is the easiest of the vows. 
It's simple living. Obedience, I realized what obedience really means. It simply means I give up my own will and live the will of him whom I serve. 90% of American nuns belong to an organization called the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. Sister Elizabeth is part of the remaining 10% who have their own group. She used to be in the same order as Pat Pora, but in the 1990s, their community split. The majority of the sisters wanted to join a more progressive order. The remaining dozen formed their own more conformist group. We have a special place in the church as religious women. Why would we separate ourselves from Rome? We wanted obedience to the church. Some of the sisters were more avant-garde than we are. Some of them did not choose to be at Mass every day. We wanted to wear the habit because it's identification. And I think today's world, there are people who want to talk with us. And separate from the Church, I don't believe that we have a ministry. My name is Sister Janice Farnham. I'm a member of the Religious of Jesus and Mary. Janice lives in Arlington, Massachusetts. Her order was questioned in the apostolic visitation. I think those who are in the Vatican always watching because what happens in the U.S. is probably going to happen in other parts of the church. It just starts here. No direct action is likely to come from the report on this apostolic visitation. The cardinal in charge has been replaced. But the very act of being questioned has warned these women. We all know that visitations come when there are problems. The hierarchy, the Vatican officials, seemingly were still back in the 19th century or even earlier. In the Catholic Church, it's not a community of equals. Really, the Catholic Church is a male-dominated you know, institution. Janice entered the convent in the 1950s. This was the boom time, with 180,000 sisters across America. Now there are just 60,000, and their average age is over 70. Janice is 72, but she's not concerned about the trickle of new recruits. When times are bad, what happens is people begin to reflect again on the values and the meaning of life in general. Bad times are good for religion, and good times are bad for religion. (laughs) This questioning by the Vatican is similar to the questioning that Janice has done herself over the decades into her own vocation. Uh, I fell in love a couple of times, and I had to question, really and truly, is this, you know, is this what I'm called to do? And then during the years of the civil rights marches and... uh, the anti-war demonstrations with the 60s, which is really, I would say, when I came of age spiritually. I did feel at certain times perhaps I would have greater freedom if I left the congregation. Now, why am I here? Because I know that I cannot be Janice Farnham if I'm not a religious of Jesus and Mary. It's that simple. And obviously I'm very moved when I say it, that that somehow my personal calling is wrapped up in being a part of this particular congregation, which is very limited, 
is far from perfect, has many problems, is diminishing quickly, but none of that matters. This is who I am, and I can be no other. That report was compiled by Emma Wetherill, and next week in a God Slot special, we'll bring you an exclusive interview with Benedictine nun, author and lecturer on peace, human rights and women's issues, Sister Joan Chittister. This Sunday at the chapel in All Hallows College in Dublin, a new setting of the Mass composed by Stefan Walliger, who has worked with Buddhist Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who featured recently on the programme. It will be celebrated by Father John Joe Spring from the college staff. The new Celtic Mass of All Hallows is based on traditional Irish melodies, one of which Mogila Mar, or Alleluia, we're playing out with now instead of our usual signature tune. If you have any comments on that or anything else you've heard on tonight's programme, our email address is godslot at rte.ie, our phone number 01208 and the postal address is the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Until next Friday evening at the same time, Good, 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 good,